I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent, Harriet Agnew, who's our city correspondent, and also Caroline Binham, who's our financial regulation correspondent. We'll also be hearing from Lord Mervyn Davis, who led a government-sponsored review on women on boards, and Catherine Garrett-Cox, the chief executive of Alliance Trust. Today, we'll be looking at the Forex manipulation scandal as banks prepare to settle a round of litigation. Secondly, the outcome of the election. What does it mean for the UK banks? And finally, a look at women in the City of London. What can be done to further promote their advancement? First off, though, a look at that foreign exchange manipulation scandal. It's been brewing for a long time. Laura, finally, we have more news this week that a whole slew of banks are going to settle. Yeah, we expect to see a group of five banks agree to pay about $6 billion to settle cases around the rigging of foreign exchange rates. Banks had already agreed to pay $4.3 billion, so the total tally now is $10 billion, which is obviously an absolutely enormous amount. The total number of banks involved is seven if you take the whole $10 billion. The numbers are very big, but you do need to look at them in the context of banks, which are also very big. So if you take JP Morgan, which we expect to be fined about $1 billion, that's only about half a percent of their total tier one equity. Even if you take Barclays, which has the biggest fine of around £2 billion, that's only about 4.3% of their tier one equity. So these are very big numbers, but you have to view them in the context of very big institutions. And most of these institutions have actually already set aside money to deal with this. So this is obviously going to be a bad news day for the banks, but it probably won't impact future earnings too much because most of the money has actually already been taken through the profit and loss accounts because banks did see this coming. Barclays is going to get the harshest treatment. Why is that? Barclays will have the highest number, partly because there was a group of six banks which settled a lot of this in November. Barclays didn't take part in that settlement. So Barclays is settling with a bigger number of regulators than anybody else is on the day. And that is the reason that they have the higher fine. And does this draw a line under the whole episode? I think banks will be very happy if it did, but no, it doesn't. There are still a number of other investigations going on. There will be investigations about individuals' behaviours. A number of people still have to settle with the regulator in New York. So this is really the gift that keeps on giving from the point of view of fines. And banks will have to wait many more months for the whole thing to play out from fines and possibly years in terms of the individuals who may be prosecuted for their roles in this. Thank you very much, Laura. Let me just bring in Caroline here. What do you think this means in the bigger picture of the bank's relationship with investors and all of the many scandals that they've been involved with over the past few years, particularly as relates to those banks that have so-called deferred prosecution agreements in place? Does this annul those or what happens? I think there are two points to be made more widely about the banks and the forex settlements. It is true that some of the banks, Barclays among them, have entered into not only deferred prosecution agreements, but also non-prosecution agreements in the past with the Department of Justice. These are a type of plea deal, and that's uh, in relation to past scandals such as LIBOR rigging. Technically, they are under threat 
if the DOJ can prove that any other criminal misconduct took place in the period in which the DPA or the NPA covers. So there have definitely been noises from the DOJ that potentially these deals are under threat. But whether that actually means an annulment, which could result in ultimately their US banking licences being revoked, or whether as is more likely, it will just increase the fines that we see ultimately laid on the banks tomorrow, I think remains to be seen. But all the indications are, I think, that it will amount to greater penalties being levied on the banks. I think the other thing to say in the context of Forex is that if the main findings by the DOJ relate to antitrust infringements, then that actually makes them pretty vulnerable to follow-on class actions, particularly in the States, under the Sherman Act, which is what we expect the DOJ to be finding breaches of in the settlements. Under the Sherman Act, treble damages can be levied against the defendants, which in the context of the banks and how much we're talking about in the forex market is very eye-watering indeed. Clearly something more for the banks to be worried about going forward. Thank you for that, Caroline. Let's move on to the second topic of the day, the UK election. So, Martin, what is the impact on the banking sector from this election win by the Tory party? Well, initial reaction was one of popping the champagne corks by many bankers in the City of London. Markets went up. Markets prefer the Tories in terms of managing the economy, in terms of tax The attention has now shifted to the Tory policy to promise a referendum on a renegotiated British membership of the European Union by 2017. Yeah, I guess that's the one big thing that the city in general doesn't like about Tory policy. Exactly, is the one downside. And attention has pretty quickly started to focus on that. And banks are we hear starting to take more seriously some of the contingency planning that they have to do, foreign banks that have big operations in the city, but also British banks, because if the UK were to leave the EU, so-called Brexit scenario, then it could be very problematic for them, especially in terms of their ability to serve continental European clients out of the City of London and out of the UK. What about the other implications, Um, thinking particularly maybe the state-owned banks? Yeah. So before the election, David Cameron and and his Chancellor, George Osborne, made several specific promises about uh, Lloyds Banking Group and Royal Bank of Scotland, in which the government still has fairly large stakes. On Royal Bank of Scotland, they have said that they think it would be good to start the process of selling down the government's 80% stake in RBS within a year of winning the election. So people are now looking towards that. Now, I've been told by a couple of people who are you know, very close to that particular situation that no government share sales in RBS are li- uh, really possible until two things have been cleared up. One of those things is the foreign exchange settlement, which we think is coming later this week, and RBS will be part of that. The other thing for RBS, though, is something that there was some news on overnight, which is um, they're being investigated for mis-selling mortgage securities in the US. And a court last night ruled that RBS and Nomura, the Japanese bank, had indeed uh, misled investors who were suing them over these mortgage-backed securities. And that's the first time a court verdict has uh, gone against the banks in this long-running affair. So that indicates that that's going to be pretty costly. And the people close to RBS think that uh, settlement of that affair is unlikely to happen before the autumn. So a government sell-down possible in the fourth quarter. And interestingly, it'll be highly unlikely that the RBS shares 
shares, which are trading at about £3.50, will have made it up to the £5 per share in price at which the government paid to bail out the bank. So they're probably going to have to sell, at least initially, at a loss to start selling down that. Lloyd's, on the other hand, is trading well above it's in price, and the government is even just today announced that it sold another one percentage point in that uh, in that bank, and the government have promised a tell Sid style public share sale campaign to sell to the general public uh, shares in in um, in Lloyd's as well as a big chunk to institutions in total nine billion pounds they want to raise again that could come fairly soon given how Lloyd's shares are performing so we could see that um, in the next few months. And a final quick word on the bank levy. That's uh, caused a lot of angst within the banking sector, particularly institutions like HSBC and Standard Chartered, which pay the lion's share of that levy. Is George Osborne going to change anything, do you think? Too early to say. I think that the government will certainly be conscious of the fact that HSBC has announced just before the election that it's reviewing whether to keep its domicile in the UK. And that will certainly put the pressure on the government to look at the levy and perhaps consider redesigning it. They've redesigned it in the past, but not in any kind of dramatic way. They've just tinkered with the weightings and um, the way that they measure the levy overseas. But I don't, you know, I don't think that the levy is the only reason that HSBC is looking to move overseas, but it's the main reason that shareholders are so exercised about this issue. And the same goes for Standard Chartered, which has also said recently that it's keeping its UK domicile under review. And given that both banks earn most of their profits from emerging markets, there's really, you know, no logical reason why they should stay in the UK. Excellent. Well, plenty for us to keep an eye on over the coming months. Let's move on to our final topic of women in the City of London. This is a topic that Harriet and I have actually written quite a lot about over the past few months. And we held an event here at the FT on Monday evening on the topic where we were joined by Lord Mervyn Davis, who chaired a government commission on the broader topic, actually, of women on boards, and also Catherine Garrett-Cox, a vocal proponent of advancing the cause of women in the City of London. Harriet, we heard particularly from the two of our guest speakers about the single most important reforms that they thought we could introduce from now in order to make things easier for women at uh, financial companies. Let's just hear what they said. I think the single thing that I would do in addition is to make sure that when we're recruiting graduates, we try to recruit in equal measure of both men and women. So start from the bottom, keep them, retain them, and you'll have a great and very talented organisation. Well, I think, uh, first of all, you've got to make sure that the pipeline of talent coming through your company is robust, that you're caring and flexible. So set the right tone as a chief executive, because I think if you set the right tone, you'll retain and develop talent. Separately, I think we've got to fix childcare in the UK. You can't do that as a CEO, but I would hope that this new government would have this as one of its top priorities. And in particular, what type of fixing should that be? Well, it's so expensive. They get no tax credits. I think if we're going to stay competitive as a nation, if we're really going to nurture female talent, I think that this is the elephant in the room. We've got to tackle it as an issue. So it's, it's restructuring the tax system and it's also maybe creating large centres around the UK. But we need a commission to look at it and we need to do it as a matter of urgency. 
So I think it came through in those comments, but also in Monday night's debate generally that childcare is, is probably the biggest issue now. It seems the biggest obstacle to female careers in the city. Harriet, why is that, do you think? Well, I think a huge amount of progress has been made at board level. This year, it's set to hit 25% of women on boards, which is double what it was in 2011 when Lord Davis did his report. That's across blue chip companies. And I think there's a realisation now that more needs to be done in order to improve the pipeline of women. So those rising up through the ranks to one day become executives or company directors. And an important period for them, I suppose, is during the sort of 28 to 40 years old period when a lot of them are having children. And I think companies are now trying to do whatever they can to make it easier for these young mothers to return to work. And having subsidised childcare, I think, is a really important part of doing that. Now, when we did our research into this whole area a few months ago, we did a poll of how well companies, different subsectors of the city were, were doing in terms of promoting women. And not many came out with great accolades out of that. But I think perhaps, as you might have expected, investment banks fared among the worst. Remind us of the figures there. Yeah, you're right. Investment banks did particularly badly. A lot of them are taking on 50 or 55% women at graduate level. But by the time you get to managing director, in some banks, it's as low as around 12% women. It's quite heartening, I suppose, at the evening that we were at where there were some prominent investment bankers among the audience, all of whom really seemed to be signed up to the idea of doing more to change this. One of the people we spoke to was James Bardrick, who is the head of the UK operation at Citigroup. So the one thing that I would change uh, reasonably short term, having already introduced uh, diverse slates for the most important executive positions, is to absolutely insist that we have diverse panels to review and debate the right candidates for those roles. And I think that's absolutely critical to getting the right outcomes rather than just ending up with a higher number of diverse slates. So Harriet, in summary, what would you say needs to be done to get this whole project off the ground in the city? Well, I think there's a big realisation that radical action needs to be taken. People aren't necessarily in favour of quotas, but they certainly do like the idea of targets. So just as if you were sending someone off to a new city to open a new office, you'd give them a target, you'd measure it and you'd make them accountable for it. They want to see more of that when it comes to improving gender diversity. Absolutely. Well, we'll report back on the success of that. And uh, who knows, if Lord Davis comes up with an executive level target across the board, that's something we can measure as well. That's all for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura, Caroline and Harriet, and also our audio guests, Lord Mervyn Davis, Catherine Garrett-Cox and James Bardrick. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.